Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Commons People this week, the mood turns against the government. But the central question is whether or not mass testing in the community is part of our national strategy to tackle the virus. The economic toll of coronavirus becomes clearer. We could well be facing a downturn that isn't just an average recession, but is closer to something like the Great, Rece- Great Depression from the 1930s. And what impact can Labour's new leader have? It's been a long campaign and it's ending in circumstances that none of us could have predicted. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Uh, we've also got Rachel Wearmouth. Hello. Hi there and we're delighted to be joined by the Conservative former Business Secretary Greg Clark. Hello Arj. Hi Greg, how are you? Um, very well. How's, um, how's, how's the lockdown treating you? It's, uh, well it's, I think we're working harder than ever before. There's, um, there's a lot of particular constituent problems that uh, that people have that um, me and my team are, uh, are grappling with trying to uh, trying to resolve uh, and then of course sharing the science and technology select committee there's a there's a lot to uh, to sink our teeth into so we're um, we're doing that as well yeah absolutely well um criticism of the government's handling of the coronavirus crisis has reached a crescendo this week as it fails to answer why there is such a shortage of virus tests, ventilators and protective equipment for NHS staff. And you know it's bad when the Daily Mail and Boris Johnson's old newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, are issuing scathing verdicts splashed across their front pages. Obviously concerned, the Prime Minister recorded a video message from self-isolation last night as he continues to battle coronavirus. Let's listen. Uh, We're also massively increasing testing. And I want to say a special word about testing because it is so important. And as I've said for, for weeks and weeks, this is the way through. This is how we will unlock the coronavirus puzzle. This is how we will defeat it in the end. And uh, what we need to do is uh, massively ramp up, not just tests so that you can know whether you've had the disease in the past, the so-called antibody test, because that will enable you to go to work in the confidence that you can't uh, be infected or, in, or infectious. Second, uh, people need to know uh, whether they haven't got it uh, rather than isolating themselves at home uh, for no reason. And that's very, very important above all for our NHS staff. And of course, it's crucial uh, that people who do have the disease are able uh, to, to be tested positive and to take the necessary steps to isolate at home in, uh, in the way that I am doing and many, many others are doing as well. Um, Paul, the mood seems to have shifted this week. Why is that? I think the mood is um, certainly uneasy, partly because we've had days now of those press conferences where there have been no real answers. And I slightly feel a bit sorry for people like Alok Sharma, who actually have been 
forced to go almost naked into the conference chamber. You know, they've been not been given enough ammo with which to respond. And Robert Jenwick the day before, I felt similarly sorry for on the morning media round because the overall strategy doesn't seem very clear. Um, these ministers are just people in the firing line who are having to sort of say what the message is without knowing quite themselves what that message is. Uh, and I think that's that's certainly come across and that frustration has boiled over. But it's not just the media squall this. I think that it, given that communications are central to what the government's doing in terms of saving lives, clarity is always important. And, that, and so in a way, I think actually this has been a, a valuable wake up call for Boris Johnson and, and for Matt Hancock. So I suspect that the whole issue of testing, how relevant it is, how important it is to the bigger fight, um, they need to clarify this afternoon, probably will try and do that. Uh, Greg, as you say, you're the chair of the Science and Technology Committee. What do you make of the government's response and where do you think it's falling down? And uh, do you agree with Paul that this could be a wake up call? Well, I think um, there's a lot in that. I think, first of all, we need to step back and consider that we're not even in the middle of the the crisis. We're in the early stages. Um, And the it's evident and my committee has been looking at whether the scientists have been influential in this and everything that we see suggests that they have been and we don't know what the um, what the final outcome will be how we've done compared to other countries so i think you know, we have to be driven by the evidence uh, on this but i think it is one of the reasons that we're taking this inquiry on during the crisis is that it's important to to learn lessons on the way some of which may need to be applied um, in flight uh, as it were and i think it is evident that the the testing capacity that we have is not where it should be it's not where we would want it to be um, sir patrick valance in evidence to my committee um, said that he would much prefer that the the testing capacity was was greater than it is uh, and so, uh, so we haven't got that, and I think that is uh, an important lesson to be learned to make sure that at the later stages of the crisis, that we get ahead as far as possible uh, of, uh, of things that will lead, whether they are uh, access to physical goods, whether it's the organisation of people, that we anticipate future phases. I think it, it's obviously too late. There's a big scramble to get testing capacity uh, up now but and we need to resolve that that's very urgent but we also need to to learn the lesson and make sure that we're ahead of where we need to be in other areas and uh, greg do you think testing is the key in terms of an exit strategy and 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 why do you think the government has fallen short on this we've seen various excuses flying around from a lack of chemicals to blaming public health england well, so the, the reasons that t- testing are important, um, uh, for two reasons, really. The, the first is during the crisis, if we could know better, obviously, classically in the case of NHS workers, uh, if they're displaying symptoms, whether they have the, the disease or not, whether they have COVID-19 or not, then they could, uh, a smaller number of them need to be self-isolating uh, and out of action um, than if we knew definitively what the result is. So that is relevant for the current handling uh, of the crisis. When it comes to uh, to exiting uh, the, the crisis, obviously, for multiple reasons, if you know uh, that someone has had the disease, and of course, this goes into the antibody testing, if you know that someone uh, has the antibodies 
uh, against the uh, the virus, then those people can be uh, can be deployed in settings where there are vulnerable people with confidence. So that's important uh, in uh, in recovering. And it's also the case that if we knew more reliably across the population how many people uh, have had COVID-19, how many people have developed uh, an immunity for it, what places it's more prevalent in, uh, what demographic groups, medical groups it's more prevalent in, then we can make judgments that are much more uh, finely grained than we're able to at the moment when we are when we're blind uh, in terms of the uh, the the spread of the the epidemic across the population. So it's important for the exit, but it's important for the handling now. Now, as to your question as to uh, why we're in this position, well, it seems evident that the strategy that uh, has been pursued has been a, a centralised uh, strategy. That the testing started with the the Collindale Laboratory, uh, which is the the main one for Public Health England. Then it spread to to twelve other labs across the country, uh, and then progressively has been rolled out beyond that. One of the questions I asked Sharon Peacock in the Select Committee uh, last week uh, was why we hadn't done all of these things simultaneously. We hadn't made use of uh, of hospitals lab hospital labs. Uh, of the the labs in universities and research uh, institutes. Um, so Paul Nurse, who runs the Crick Institute, um, has talked about the the little boats, um, the Dunkirk uh, analogy. Uh, I don't know why that wasn't pursued from the outset, um, given that it was being pursued in other countries like famously South Korea. I asked the, uh, the, the, the professor of Public Health England this. The answer wasn't terribly satisfactory. And so I've written on behalf of the committee to ask for the publication of the, the, the research that informed that decision to be made available. And I hope that will be published uh, in the next few days. Um, Rachel, Rachel, you've just been in the um, lobby briefing. What's, what's the reaction like in number 10 to the coverage overnight and, and the kind of growing uproar? Um, they're, they're being very, they're not saying a great deal on, on testing at this moment. They're talking about larger labs opening. I think one in che one in Cheshire was mentioned, one in Glasgow was mentioned. Um, but I just, just wanted to cut in and ask, ask Greg, they say you feel now it's, it's, it's too late to, to ramp up the testing significantly. What makes you, what makes you think that no, it's... Not, not too late in the sense that it can't be ramped up significantly and it absolutely needs to be, but uh, too late in the sense that we've lost time that, that can literally never be recovered uh, if we were... Uh, if we had the capacity being deployed at the moment to test every NHS worker, uh, then we'd have people who could be working in hospitals uh, who currently, quite rightly, are self-isolating. So we'll we'll never recover that time. So to that extent, uh, it's too late. But absolutely not. It's, I'm glad you uh, asked me to to clarify that we absolutely need to expand as quickly as we can the the testing um, regime. And I think the, the the deployment of the university labs and the research institute labs uh, in a decentralised way seems to me to be the right response. And I wanted to just check a bit on that, Greg. Um, the confused messages are, are a real problem because we had last night the Prime Minister saying how he felt that testing was the key to unlocking this big puzzle. And yet we got the Deputy Chief Medical Officer only last week saying there comes a point in a pandemic where testing is not an appropriate intervention. 
Um, is, is there a way of squaring those two circles? Well, so I would think it, it could be squared in, in this sense, that three weeks ago when the the tactics changed, we, we'd, we'd been establishing drive-through test centres uh, across the, the country, and that seemed to be a, a good way to approach it. That was then changed, and it was only patients in inpatients in hospitals that were being uh, tested. That seemed to be a reflection of the reality that there wasn't the volume of tests available, so we had to to change it. And the most important thing, uh, given that we weren't able to to tell reliably who in the population had it, was for anyone that was displaying symptoms to to isolate themselves, and for everyone else um, also to isolate themselves to to stop it spreading. So it's a a kind of safety first uh, approach once it had reached a certain level in the population. So, uh, so the the advice that we had to lock down and to go into uh, into these uh, exceptional measures uh, was, I think, a reflection of the fact that we simply didn't have and weren't going to have the information that was necessary to make a, a more forensic uh, judgment. So, if, if we'd had more testing earlier, we could have perhaps delayed the lockdown more effectively? Well, again, I think this is where we have to be a bit cautious um, because we know in the case of Germany, for example, that has much greater testing capacity. Um, and uh, if you look at the the trajectory of, uh, of deaths that we see in Germany, actually there, there is no, there isn't a uh, a marked difference that can be discerned. So we we are still in the early days uh, here, but I think everyone accepts. You know, my, when my committee interviewed both Patrick Valance um, and Neil Ferguson, uh, it was it was acknowledged universally that it would be better if we had more testing capability. Um, and uh, and the suggestion was that this was an operational bottleneck. It wasn't a a policy decision uh, not to not to choose to to test quite the reverse uh, it was uh, an, an inability to to lay our hands on the testing capacity that we um, we would have preferred to have had and that's why I think it's a question that we need to to address and to learn the lessons of for later stages and when you say when you've said that they've taken too centralized an approach is do you think that's because the Scottish government and the the UK government are, are having a bit of a clash there, or do, why do you think do you think they're not working together effectively? Why do you think it's been so centralised? I, I, I haven't picked up anything that uh, suggests that it's a it's a clash between the um, the UK government and the and the Scottish government. Uh, it is the Sharon Peacock was very clear about this in evidence to the committee. Um, she said that they'd considered the. The South Korean approach, and she volunteered. I think there was seventy-two labs in South Korea that were uh, were testing uh, in that country, and that they had considered but rejected and chosen a model uh, that was uh, was centralised. Now, I think the reasons for that were around, and it's been said about quality control to make sure that the tests that are being applied, you can be confident, uh, are, are robust, and you're not getting uh, false results. Uh, there's clearly a judgment that's been made about whether the you know, the logistics uh, 
are, are easier to have a to have big labs. There's a big one that's been set up in Northern Keynes. You know, having tests sent there and the results coming back, working twenty four seven. Whether actually that is quicker than having a distributed network uh, of uh, of testing centres, but we haven't seen published the the evidence and the papers that were behind that decision that was taken to have a centralised model. I think it's important that it should. Um, you know, we have to learn lessons during the crisis as well as afterwards. And you know, this question of whether a centralised response or a decentralised response, it seems to me, has implications for for other areas and other decisions we'll take later. So we ought to we ought to learn the lessons. Uh, just finally on this, Greg, what do you think the the uh, big test the government has to pass in the next few days to turn this around is now? To to pardon my pun. Well, so it needs to, obviously to to deliver on its stated intention to expand radically the testing capability uh, to be able to uh, to offer tests to uh, to NHS workers, but then beyond that to can, other can... people in vulnerable. Uh, professions, obviously care workers, people in the, the emergency services uh, and beyond. Uh, it needs to do that. But the other thing is the development of the, the antibody test and the deployment of that. Now, just over a week ago, um, uh, a week last Wednesday, Sharon Peacock of Public Health uh, England came up with this astonishing announcement that millions of these tests had been procured um, and were in the final stages of being validated. Um, she said that they were that by the end of the weekend, i.e., last weekend, um, they would have gone through their testing. Uh, and so I, in the committee, asked, "Well, would, are they going to be available to the public from Monday, i.e., last Monday?" She said, "Well, she couldn't give it to Monday." So I said, "Well, is this going to be in uh, in weeks or months or days?" And she said, "Certainly days." Um, now we're eight days from when she made that statement. Um, so I think, again, we need to know what's happened to that program uh, because it is very important for all of the, the importance and it won't go away, this importance uh, of the, the testing of people with the virus. Uh, it will be, for the reasons I've talked about earlier, of huge significance to be able to test uh, people more generally across the population to discover whether they've had it or not. Yeah, I was uh, hoping to go and pick up my antibody test in Boots today after watching Sharon Peacock last no, week. I, I, I don't think you're going to be able to get it to today, but I don't, uh, <laughs> uh, it's probably not going to be in, in Boots. But I, uh, I hope that I hope that they're right. I think you know all of us uh, wants this to to work. The you know, there's there's goodwill behind everyone that's working very. Uh, hard on this, and you know, if I sound critical of public health England, it's not to, um, it's not to be any, uh, to to fail to recognise the huge work and the the difficulty of these decisions. We're learning as we're going, and that's I think how we should proceed and how science proceeds. That actually, you you publish your evidence, you're clear about it. Some sometimes you will make calls that are the wrong calls, and it could be that the you know, the well-intentioned desire to centralise has come up against the the logistical reality uh, of op of operating that. If that's I the case, that was... then you know let, let's be clear about it and go to Plan B and learn that lesson for future phases when it comes to to rolling out other things at a at a national level. <laughs> Thank you.
Make the most of your time indoors by learning a new language with Babbel. With 14 different languages, Babbel teaches through real-life conversations and is designed to get you speaking a different language quickly with 10 to 15-minute classes. Try Babbel today with the free app or at babbel.co.uk. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.co.uk, or download the app to try for free. Babbel, learn a new language and make it your own. While the economic impact of the virus was thrown into stark relief last night by figures showing claims for universal credit skyrocketing to nearly 1 million, not all of them will be unemployed, but the FT notes that the figures suggest jobs are being lost at a faster rate than during the 2008-9 to financial crash. Some people are suggesting that the lockdown could have a longer-term impact more grave than the short-term health consequences, including former Pizza Express chairman Luke Johnson. Let's listen we could well be facing a downturn that isn't just an average recession, but is closer to something like the Great, Rece Great Depression from the 1930s. And if you look at the uh, misery and ill health that that caused and the damage to uh, um, society as a whole, then I think there is, you know, a serious debate to be had about whether we are just uh, relentlessly pursuing the right course of action. Paul, health versus wealth, is this a zero-sum game? Uh, I don't think it is. I, mean, I think there's a really difficult balancing act, which obviously the government is very acutely conscious of, which is how long is this lockdown going to last? And the longer it lasts, obviously, the, the greater the economic impact. Um, economists have been talking about this could be a V-shaped sort of uh, downturn. They're hoping a very quick bounce back because obviously the, the capacity in many ways in the economy won't change just because people are, are, are freezing things. But if they go beyond freezing things and laying off mem members of staff, and if companies, more importantly, then go bust, it's very difficult to get that a company started again once it's gone bust. So as Greg has certainly been pushing this, certainly in the past um, through ministers on the self-employed and other issues of how what sort of wage protection there can be, I think the government have actually done quite a good job so far through the Treasury of supporting workers and supporting the self-employed. The big problem, I think, is um, this debate about just how long it lasts. And I think there's been some sort of uh, sort of erroneous comments so far, shall we say. I mean, there was a Toby Young blog which really caused a lot of uh, anger earlier this week, suggesting that the government was misspending this money. Um, the, all the economic advice is that actually this is money well spent in terms of preventing further economic damage. So although it will be put into boring long term, it's actually quite a sensible policy to spend a lot. The The difficulty is that this this famous phrase, which is, is the cure worse than the disease? Um, that's been used by Trump in the States, um, who nicked it, as it seems, off uh, Steve Hilton from Fox News, uh, the prime minister's former advisor. Um, Boris Johnson, obviously, he's a he's a classicist, so he'll he'll know that it's Virgil's phrase. Um, I think it's agrescit medendo is the, the the cure is worse than the disease. So uh, he will know all about that, but equally he won't. Want, I imagine he won't go anywhere near that as a, as a sort of philosophy for this government because not only does it sound callous, actually economically it doesn't quite make sense. Yeah, Greg, what do you make of that argument that some well, commentators? Well, I'm impressed by that, uh, Paul's uh, classical erudition uh, there. Um, I think Paul's analysis is uh, is right. You should regard this um, as as it is. It's a once in a hundred year event, and my argument has been both for employees 
uh, and for the self-employed, and it applies generally across the country, that the, the states should should step in as a kind of insurer. Um, if for for lesser events, lots of businesses have business continuity insurance. So if the unexpected happens, they're able to keep going on the basis that they can resume their activities uh, afterwards. That happens um, with other events. Now this is this is beyond what most insurance uh, cover um, underwrites. But that's what the state should should do. It should try to to keep the economy uh, going, um, to keep businesses from going to the wall, so that we can resume uh, once the the crisis is over. And so, so it's it, this isn't like you know spending money in normal times. This is this is the payout of an insurance policy that uh, there's no one other than the state that can do that. And I think it needs to do it in a way that is, and has been, to be fair, uh, generous and you know fit for the purpose uh, of uh, of keeping keeping the economy intact as far as we can. Uh, Rachel, what do those universal credit figures actually mean for for listeners who might just hear a load of stats and talk about universal credit and not truly understand what's going on there? Yeah. So, um, so it's so. Over the last two weeks, so since since Boris Johnson announced the the lockdown, he announced sort of no non-essential contact and for people to to stay at home, there have been 950,000 people, so almost a million people that have gone to claim universal credit. So that kind of speaks to uh, the jobs shock that we're seeing, but also loss of of income for people who are self-employed and this kind of thing. So just for... Just for context, um, you could think about it in terms of what happened in 2008 when we had the, the banking crisis and job seekers allowance. They saw um, over the course of a year arise from 46, 46,000 claimants to 82,000 claimants. Um, so we're seeing something like an, a 500 percent increase in um, people claiming universal credit. And Torsten Bell, the um, guy who runs the uh, Resolution Foundation think tank said we've we've just never seen anything like this before. It's not not remotely normal, even in a recession. And I wonder if it's worth thinking about at this point just how many households have been relying on on personal debt and um, just the level of need there is out there. And I wonder if it's kind of just how much we will see our economy be reshaped after this particular crisis. When you think about some of the jobs that might not reappear, like those that we may have lost due to automation anyway, you know, sort of retail jobs, for example. So, um, yeah, they do sound like a lot of figures at the moment, but just the, the absolute scale of it is worth thinking about. It's, it's huge. Yeah, Greg, what do you make of that? I mean, this was kind of your brief as business secretary. Uh, it was, and it was one of the reasons that I I called for the the scheme that I was pleased that the Chancellor had adopted, which is to kind of reverse the flow of taxation using the tax system, both to the employed and the self-employed, recognising that that's what you need to do at uh, these times. Because I think there is a difference between this and most other recessions um, we've uh, we've had. You know, this is this is a health emergency that has caused people to be forced to uh, to stay at home, um, and it's not about problems in the productive capacity of the economy or demand generally. Uh, and so I'm sure there will be longer term consequences, but the right way to think about this is to get through the crisis and to try to to keep everything intact just in the way that an insurance payout uh, is there to help 
people and firms get through unexpected circumstances. I think that has to be the the, the lodestar for for the government to to try to keep the economy uh, in a position to to bounce back uh, afterwards. Uh, and uh, and it will, although uh, of course people are going to uh, to behave and act in different ways in the future, and there will be you know, long term consequences uh, that we people uh, will uh, will be subject to from this crisis. But we are speaking for myself. I'm uh, I'm champing at the bit to be able to to go down the pub uh, again and <laughs> and, uh, and to to see friends and to uh, to sit around a. Uh, a table for a coffee and uh, in a restaurant and to to shop normally, and so there will be uh, already. I think everyone probably feels you know, people making sort of mental lists of the things they're going to do when when we the lockdown lifts. So so there is you know, for the economy there is a potential uh, uplift when when we come out of this. It may not be sudden. It may you know, we may have to release ourselves from the lockdown bit by bit. But that is there. And so the priority, it seems to me, is for the, the state as an investment to try to get people uh, and the economy through it. Do you worry about the level of debt that we have at the moment, the level of debt that people have? Yes. I mean, one of the things that um, I, I, I've worried and I think a lot of people have worried about in recent years is the, the degree of personal debt that we uh, that we have in this country. And obviously that's not uh, at all an ideal way to go into a crisis in which people are going to have to to take on more debt and I, and I think that is uh, one of the the many lessons that we'll have to address coming out of this as, as to how we can you know, we can I think be more active in recognizing the the kind of fragility that comes from situation in which people have high levels of, of personal debt and to and to find a way to to, to to change that situation for the future. I was just going to say, I can't wait to go to the pub either. But um, <laughs> no, I, think we're, I think we're all in that boat. Just to to to, to go to people watch. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there, there has been something else going on apart from coronavirus, and that is the Labour leadership campaign, which feels like something from a different era. It's finally drawn to a close, and Keir Starmer looks almost certain to get the top job. Here he is on the final day of the campaign, uh, praising the, the unified approach the candidates have taken. I just want to say a massive thank you to each and every one of our supporters who've been with us in this leadership campaign. It's been a long campaign and it's ending in circumstances that none of us could have predicted. But we've kept it positive, we've demonstrated unity and people have gone over and beyond and I'm genuinely so thankful for everything you've put in. With the campaigns that Rebecca and Lisa have run and we've run, I think we've demonstrated to our party, to our movement and hopefully to the country that real good can come out of this election. Thank you again so much. Please stay safe, stay well, stay inside if you can. Massive thanks. Um, Paul, Starm has been very quiet during this coronavirus crisis in terms of talking about it. Um, how do you think he's going to play it once he takes over the the job, assuming he does? Um, well, I think what's interesting is he's been quite strategic in his interventions and it, it just shows just temperamentally what he's like as well as politically. Um, just as with the Brexit uh, policy for Labour, you saw him spend literally nearly two years 
incrementally changing the party's position, getting people around a consensus, not just the Parliamentary Labour Party, which was heavily divided, but the Labour Party members and a, a wider sort of Labour family around a, a policy. I think you'll see something similar here. That in, in, that's his modus operandi. That's how he operates. He looks at, at the way the sort of unify not just his party, but maybe the country. And, and, and he'll go along and he'll plod along and say, actually, I'll hold back. And then I'll make an intervention and it'll be an infinite matters. And I think that's the right approach because, you know, he's going to get no airtime on Saturday. Um, you know, normally this would be a huge event, wall to wall coverage, a brand new potential prime minister. Um, none of that is going to be there. There's not even going to be a live uh, footage of it. Um, it's going to be done almost by email. So he, he knows that he's got to when he does speak, he's got to really speak and, and, and say something that matters. And I think that's what happened. Obviously, his debut at PMQs when and if Parliament returns will be a big moment. Uh, but again, now I suspect his temperamentally will start off by being very forensic, just as he has throughout his career, asking supportive, constructive questions. And Labour, to be given credit, have, have adopted that approach so far. Um, Greg, you played a, a key role in the Conservatives' long years in opposition under the Blair Brown government. Uh, have you got any advice for Keir Starmer? Yeah. So, um, uh, first of all, I agree with Paul that I think you know this is a time of crisis, and people, I think, will be looking for the leader of the opposition to be to be forensic and to and to use his kind of powers of uh, uh, of analysis and judgment. Um, but not, as I'm sure he won't, not to to kind of seek to insert himself in it um, other than to to do his public duty. And that has, I think, generally been the approach of the opposition. I think it's uh, commendable uh, on that. He, he needs to, as I'm sure he will, you know, devote all his time for the next few weeks to, uh, to the, the crisis. Um, one of the things that um, I remember when... Uh, when William Hague was uh, leader of the the opposition, um, and he was uh, he was asked, I think it was by Ian Duncan Smith um, when he when he took over the leadership. Um, you know, there was a discussion about you know what do you need to do in the early days to you know to to make your mark. And actually, William's advice, which I remember and was um, was characteristically shrewd, was you don't need to do anything deliberately to do that, to kind of insert yourself into the story. By the time of the next election, I remember William saying, everyone will know the name of the leader of the opposition and for better or for worse, have a judgment as to whether uh, he or she is up to the to the job. So don't feel the need in the early days to uh, to make a, a sudden burst onto the to the scene uh, and fear that people won't come to know you. Uh, I, I would imagine if it is Keir Starmer, that would be the approach that he would take. And I think it would be the right one. Yeah, interesting. Um, I'm just conscious of the time. So let's, uh, right, right. Um, we're running out of time, guys. So let's move on to the quiz. We've got to get Greg Clark doing the quiz, especially <laughs> this one, because to mark his departure as Labour leader, this week's is all about Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, so there'll this be not my specialist subject. <laughs> uh, yeah. so I'm not sure. Be relieved to hear. <laughs> yeah. um, so just shout out the answer if you know it. There's no real rules. Um, so first question: What was Jeremy Corbyn's nickname in childhood? Oh, right. No idea. Oh, oh, got no idea. Pop it. Pop it. Was that yours? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> what 
Was it was it um woolly jumper? No. <laughs> Anyone else want to go? Um, oh, it's sort of loosely related to his name, sort of. Hmm. I think Jezza is too too modern a uh, version, isn't it? Yeah, for, uh, for, for it to be a childhood thing. I'll give you the answer. It was Jelly. Jelly. And his brother Andrew was called Dumbo. Uh, what? It's probably a relief it was that way round. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which award has Corbyn won a record six times? Oh, Westminster Beard of Fact, the Year. Yeah. Yes. Well done, Rachel. <laughs> well done. Greg, did you know that you were about to, to chime in there? I think you no, might. No, I was going to say Backbencher of the Year, but ah, uh, no, Rachel's no. Uh, is much more on the money. <laughs> Rachel's ahead in the quiz then. Uh, final question. To, so someone can peg Rachel back and get a draw, otherwise she's going to win. Um, Jeremy Corbyn is is an avid photographer of what? Birds? Marrows? Um, manhole covers. Yes, well done, Greg. Wow. That's a point to you. Well so it's done. Paul nil, Greg won, Rachel won. Well done, Greg. Uh, yes, Corbyn said he picked up the zany pastime from his mother who had a keen interest in social history. Uh, and he describes manhole covers as quite artistic. Well, there, you so go. there you go. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> aren't they person hole covers for Jeremy Corbyn? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. Uh, We'll just leave you with ITV's Robert Peston capturing the spirit of the coronavirus while wrestling with video conferencing during the Downing Street Daily Briefing. Uh, Can I turn next to Robert Peston from ITV? Hello? Afternoon, Robert. Oh, hello. Sorry, my connection doesn't seem to be terribly stable, so I'll I'll give it a go. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.